Okay, so welcome back to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank, and let's get cracking. So today I've put together a bit of a motley crew of folks that I've met during my journey down the UFO rabbit hole, and I think it's fair to say you all have a keen interest in the consciousness side of the UFO phenomenon. It's an area that I'm fascinated by, but definitely don't consider myself an expert, certainly not qualified. And uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing you guys' thoughts on this really interesting area of the topic. So we have with us today one of the co-hosts of the excellent Cohen All Beans podcast slash YouTube channel, which I'm now also honoured to be a part of. This gentleman is also a co-host of Liminal Frames with Exo Academian as well. It's Nathan. How are you doing today, mate? Great, Frank. Good to be with you. Looking forward to talking about this. You know, this is a big, big topic for me. Very excited to get into it. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Been looking forward to this all week. And we're also joined by a bit of a yoga specialist, cyclist extraordinaire, a regular contributor to UFO Twitter, and now also the host of the Shifting Gears podcast, Davey Johnston. How are you doing today, mate? I'm wonderful, thank you, Frank. Um, very privileged to be on with such esteemed guests and uh, your usual wonderful host. So, yeah, great to be here. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And once again, making a return appearance, bit of a bit of a regular these days. A UK-based UFO researcher and analyst, UK UAP on Twitter. Ash, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, good, Frank. Twice in uh, twice in one week. What's going on there? So, um, yeah, no, great to be here, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to getting into this this conversation, especially with uh, you know the likes of Davey and Nathan here. So, uh, yeah, should be good. Excellent. So, first of all, we might as well dive straight into the deep end. Um, I think we'll just kind of go around and get you guys' thoughts on like the general concept of of what is consciousness. What does that mean to you? and how you think that that might be linked with the UFO phenomenon. Obviously, it's a, a pretty big area, so you know, go into as much or as little detail as you like. Feel free to follow any tangents. And um, I'll maybe start with you, Nathan, if that's cool, mate. Sure. Yeah, I'll give, a, I'll give it a shot. Uh, I know many shows and uh, philosophers and scientists have tried to answer this question, what is consciousness? So I don't, I'm not under any illusions that I can uh, get this uh, satisfactorily addressed today, but you know, essentially it's, uh, it's experience, right? We know that we all have experience and uh, we know that what we see and, and taste and feel and, and interact with in the world, that that's all happening in our conscious awareness. So consciousness is involved in our participation in, in, in reality. Um, now there's uh, a lot of different, you know, sort of sub theories about consciousness uh, one that's really popular that I think we're all very familiar with in the, in the 20th century, 21st century, and that's consciousness is derivative of activity in the brain, right? So uh, th- th- this comes from our science, looking at the material world and saying, well, look at all this stuff that's happening. Uh, we, can, we can drill down to these very fine levels of detail uh, to atoms and, and quarks and, and, you know, in the brain, we can look at neurons. And we, when, 
when someone is thinking something, we can actually kind of image their brain and say, oh, there's activity happening in the brain. So that means that this activity is causing this conscious experience. we, We tend to think there's a causal relationship between brain activity and the conscious experience. So then it follows that, well, if we could figure this out a little bit more, we could somehow simulate consciousness. If we could uh, you know, create some analogs to neuronal activity in the brain, if we did it in, in enough, you know, kind of had enough of them and had enough complex interactions of them, then we could create a consciousness. And this is, uh, you know, kind of the mission of a lot of our artificial intelligence re- research now is to kind of do this and simulate consciousness that at some point we might uh, basically give birth to consciousness in the lab and we would reach this what's called artificial g- general intelligence and then artificial superintelligence that would far surpass you know human intelligence. So th- this is a kind of a fundamental notion of our uh, materialist modern science, right? That that consciousness is a derivative of uh, material activity. Well, uh, you know, my perspective on this is that um, it's the other way around. So material, everything that we see in the world, uh, what we call real is, is, you know, we only know that it's happening in consciousness. To posit that consciousness comes from material is actually taking an extra step that, that we, that, you know, we're kind of just kind of wishing or it's, it's a magical idea that that is what, what is happening. And that, that whole brain activity thing, just because it's, there's a correlation doesn't mean that, that, it, that it really is a causal relationship. And so, uh, you know, we'll get into this in a lot more, but, you know, to kind of sum that up, the, the world reality as we know it is mental activity it, is, is all it is, is mementation. It's, it's the part of the larger conscious uh, of the cosmos, if you will. And that we are kind of individual consciousnesses within that larger entity. If I could even use that word, it might not be the best word to use there. Yeah. That, great, great summary there to, uh, to kick things off, mate. Thank you very much. And, um, what do you reckon, Davey? I see you sipping on a brew dog there, is it? <laughs> it is indeed. Um, Where the whistle? I, I might need a couple more of these to um, compete with Nathan, but I think we can just close <laughs> it there, can't we, Nathan? You've summed it up perfectly. Yeah, that's um, it. Episode over, guys. We can all go done. home. All right. Yep. Switching gears. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a couple of things there that I wholeheartedly agree with. This This concept that consciousness is what we express, what we feel, what we what we are aware not aware of so again essentially awareness and it, it really makes me smile and laugh when people talk about well it's what we know what we sense what we feel through our five senses because we've known for hundreds of years that we have more than five senses but we still talk about the five senses classic senses touch taste sense smell etc so there's that real external concept to it that it is exactly as nathan said that it's what you experience externally and that creates the the mental activity the brain activity that you can pick up in an fmri scanner within the brain there was another lovely word that nathan used there which really always every time i hear it it makes me smile the word real mm. because one of my first ever experiences of of the ufo world was attending a, a conference in the early 90s up in the northeast of England, and there was a Finnish uh, doctor there by the name of Dr. Rauni Kilda. 
and she was the former chief medical officer for Northern Finland. And she had a beautiful Scandinavian accent that it took me 20 minutes to work out what she was saying and what she meant. And she kept talking about, it is entirely possible that these things live in different realms. <laughs> and it clicked. It was like a the scales falling from my eyes, a penny being dropped, realms. And so when you talk about other realms, other realities, it was this, this at the core of that is this word real. So what is real? And is a physical experience that we have in our waking conscious life any less real than an experience we have in, say, perhaps a dream state? or a psychedelic-induced state, are they any more or less real? And that, to me, comes to one of the, the cause here of what consciousness is For, as a human. I'm sure we'll get on later as to whether we consider, you know, animism, whether anything else can have a consciousness. So, yeah, there we go for me. More Brewdog. Yeah, spot on, mate. I think that's a, a good way to go, is that? Um, yeah, it's... um. These terms as well, um, perhaps you guys can help me out uh, with this, the, the materialism thing, the material, what, what's, the, what's the terminology there, Nathan, perhaps? Right, so there are two uh, sort of metaphysical uh, paradigms, right? And a metaphysical paradigm is just a, a model that we're going to use to explain the way that we think the world works, the way that reality functions, right? So materialism is the model that we're all very familiar with because the science that we have, the knowledge that we've attained uh, when we're born into, into the world today, it's, it's saturated with a materialist perspective. And that comes back to the things that I mentioned earlier that, you know, that we can kind of put things under a microscope that, that, it, that we can uh, in, individuate uh, different pieces of what we experience. And by cataloging the, those things, individuating them and modeling how they interact, we can derive how reality is from those tiny little things that we observe. And uh, there are some, you know, some, some issues with that uh, quantum mechanics. Uh, the, I mean, many of the founders of quantum mechanics actually ran into this. A lot of them had you know, kind of a very mystical experience with their research uh, that when you drill down far enough, the kind of Newtonian way that we look at the world, you know, where it's like a, the billiard ball and a billiard table, you know, you send the ball down, hits another ball, that ball moves. These kinds of classical interactions like just aren't happening at this very lower level of reality at this, you know, quantum level, they don't function in that way. And so you had what, you know, things like what Einstein called the spooky action at distance. We don't know how this is happening. It doesn't seem very Newtonian super bizarre. And so, uh, you know, they're just sort of looking at the data that they have and going off. I don't know what it is, but we know we'll eventually figure th this out. Uh, and it, but it is still going to be that there, there are, you know, there's some sort of tiny me me mechanisms, you know, the tiny little bits that are in there that we haven't yet, yet discovered that we're going to figure this out. And, you know, like our particle accelerators are trying to do this right now, like kind of simulate what happens when you slam these things together and through high energy and see what, spills out of those interactions. So materialism, I think everybody kind of, we don't use the word a lot, but we know what it is because that, that's just the world that we inhabit. Now, the other model is called idealism. And so idealism is the reverse, right? So instead of building reality from those tiny bits, you know, all the way up to consciousness at the very top of that kind of pyramid, instead consciousness is at the bottom 
it's the fundamental layer of reality and the the things that inhabit the world that we experience that is all taking place within consciousness and is what what conscious activity looks like when you observe and experience it yeah perfect that that's uh just clears up the terminology so i've got everything lined up in my head nicely to set the scene thank you very much mate um so what are you saying ash what do you recommend just thoughts on consciousness in general yeah so um well i don't know how we follow both those those parts there some really interesting stuff already <laughs> covered we'll hopefully get into more of the quantum stuff a little bit later on because i've got quite a few comments on that um but yeah i guess it goes back to you know they're all fundamental questions aren't they you know what is consciousness yeah, it's, it's not something we're going to answer in an hour um but i think something worth considering is you know how is consciousness is consciousness generated is it received i find that interesting as well because that opens up different doors into you know different potential theories and what's causing it i mean one of the theories i i quite like the look of um not that i pin myself to any one theory i like to keep my options open but is the work of um stuart hammer dr stuart hammerhoff and sir roger Pemrose. uh you know they, their whole quantum theory of consciousness that consciousness is kind of received in the microtubules inside the brain neurons uh, and that you know if you were to um go under general anesthetic or um having you know you, you black out for a while it's kind of just switched off it doesn't actually go anywhere the information is still there somewhere in the ether in the in the universe uh the akashic record you know whatever you want to call it it's still there and then it switches back on once your consciousness comes back so that would indicate that potentially consciousness is a is a received thing we experience rather than something that's generated by ourselves so there's, there's loads of really interesting theories out there and as nathan alluded to you know once we start getting into the quantum realm that's when things get really interesting and a little bit freaky because no one can really understand what the hell is going on. Scientists like to, as Nathan said, have something really stringent they can test and they, you know, hypothesize and go, well, that yeah, we put it under a microscope. That is what it is, and we know it's doing this because of this. Um, you can't really do that when you get into the quantum quantum realm. You know, things can be in the, in the same place uh, or, or or nowhere at the same time. It's it's you know, it can it gets very interesting. And when we start feeding back, I think one of your original questions, Frank, was how does this link to the UFO phenomenon? Well, I think you know, if, if you start to think that mindset around quantum mechanics, that's that kind of opens up a lot of doors into why people experience what they do and, and how consciousness links in with the UFO phenomenon. So um, that's, yeah, to summarize very quickly, your first question, um, I'll just throw a few things in there, but hopefully we can get a little bit detailed into the more detail into these theories and, and you know, quantum reality and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the the quantum side of things. I mean, I've, I, again, these things I find them absolutely fascinating. I try to grapple with them. Um, I, I remember listening to uh, Kurt Jaimungle's, um, you know, very basic ten minute explainer about quantum gravity, and I was like, right, here we go. Got stuck in, made a cup of tea, and I just, yeah, I struggled to really take it in because <laughs> it's pretty out there concepts, you know, for a for a drummer from Manchester to to get my head around. I'm certainly no physicist, but really fascinating and. Um, never ceases to amaze me the the possibilities of you know future technologies using those kind of uh, you know those those bizarre aspects of of uh, the, the quantum world. Go on, uh, David, did you have something to yeah, add one, there, mate? One thing I'd just love to add is I'm exactly the same as you. My head cannot cope. My head explodes. You know, I'm a I'm a, a linguist and a cyclist. <laughs> I'm certainly not a physicist. But what I would just one thing I would. Um, discusses i heard a wonderful podcast this week that the bbc did the strange cases of rutherford and fry and these are two straight down the middle of the road materialist scientists and they were talking about the strange world of magnets 
and how when we first started to understand what magnets were and how they could have this genuinely spooky action at a distance, you can have one magnet affecting another one, they created the concept of a magnetic field purely because they needed that field theory in order to be able to explain how one thing could affect something directly that was non-local to it. It's like dark matter, isn't it? We don't know what that is. And it's just, it's just no one understands that, but they've just created something to explain something. It's kind of, that's how it works until you know what it is. Just, it just becomes a word. <laughs> and you use, you use the, the linguistic framework and the language that you have to be able to describe that reality that surrounds you. And this is something I'd like to ask you, Nathan, where you think we are either constrained or restrained perhaps by our language in terms of how we describe the, first of all, our reality, but then also some of these phenomena that we're experiencing. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent question. And the magnetism example is a good illustration of that, right? So uh, we, to, to very simply to answer your question, yes, it does. So our language does define the world that we inhabit it, it it sort of creates boundaries and limits on what we understand can happen in that world the limits of what what can happen uh and then it also is exclusionary by nature as well so things that that are not within that language uh you know kind of schema like they, they just don't exist they don't happen um and so it it colors the way that we interact with the world and and what we perceive it literally defines our experience uh, of reality and, you know, in a culture that, you know, is looking to create these distinctions, these really hard distinctions between objects, subject, object, right? Uh, and, and say, you know, like when you're a baby, this is a good illustration. And, you know, Darren and I talk about this on our show that will, I think, be on tonight. But, you know, when, when you're, if you've had a child and you're, you know, you're raising that child and you're teaching them things, you know, you're teaching them that, you know, that, that the, the dog is not part of the baby, you know, the, the tree is not part of the baby, the, the ball is not, you know, the, you're, you're creating these distinctions, you know, for them, whereas they're, prior to you introducing that to them, they are essentially kind of one with what it, whatever they are experiencing. Everything they are experiencing is happening in, in that baby's awareness. You're introducing the concept of separation. Um, and so, you know, that, that's something that when we're adults, we, we just take for granted, right? It's just subject object separation. That's just the world that we live in. But it's, it's, it's a good example of how, you know, language can define the ways in which we think. And I think your, the magnetism illustration is excellent because it illustrates how when confronted with these strange behaviors, we, we have to kind of uh, shoehorn in, into our model you know, like the best we can, we try to, we try to work with this weird phenomenon and make it work the best we can, but it, it may not be that, 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 that effective or it's effective to a point. Right. And so this is a good point overall. And, that, and that's that, uh, no matter what we uh, find to be sort of the best, you know, operating metaphysical model of reality, like right now for, for each of us or for society, it's a, it's going to be a fact that 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 is incomplete in some form or fashion because our uh, our own perceptual awareness is limited, our own knowledge is limited. Um, it's just like if we were to go back in time and look at uh, you know kind of a Stone Age civilization and their conception of reality, we would be like, oh well, this is you know this is absurd, and and they would have literally no uh, you know comparison to the way that we conceive of of reality. 
we, we would be kind of like aliens to each other, right? Um, and so that that is going to be true in the future as well. So whatever we hold to be the most, you know, sort of uh, the models with the, with the greatest explanatory power right now are no doubt going to be replaced by other models in the future that have greater explanatory power. And anything that has explanatory power gives those that inhabit that world more mastery over how the world functions. Right. So, you know, that's why we have technology. We have, we have all these models that can, that can tell us how to do things. And so then we, we create all this amazing technology because our models are incredibly, uh, they're not, they're not perfect, but, but they're accurate enough for us to be able to do these kinds of manipulations. Right. And so, but, you know, getting to the phenomenon and I, you know, I apologize, I can go on for a long time on this, but getting into the phenomenon, um, you know, it's a good illustration too of how of that. It's just like the magnetism issue, right? So uh, you can, we, we're living in a world that we all have agreed on. This is how it functions, right? That these things can happen. But then all of a sudden you have these experiences, you know, you have people seeing these crafts that are doing things that don't, it can't, it can't seemingly happen in the parameters of the world that we've been told exists. Uh, then you have people who have experiences of beings or, or, you know, other kinds of experiences. And those things also, like, they don't fit within the paradigm of the world as they were taught how it exists. And so what that should tell us is that the model that we have about the world isn't actually good. Like, the model needs tweaking and revision because it needs to be able to account for and incorporate these kinds of experiences. Now, that's not to say all of them. Because we all know there are some experiences that are not, you know, genuine, right? There are some that, you know, we all can be prone to flights of fancy or misidentification. That uh, certainly happens. But if you look at the amount of experience that is being uh, shared in, in the history of, you know, phenomenological lore across people, different peoples uh, from di- di- different cultures, and, and you see these kind of similarities and patterns, you know, Jacques Vallée is a good, good example of someone who's, who's kind of done this. Uh, then you have to take it more seriously. You can't just write it off as just this figment of someone's imagination because it's happening to thousands of people, right? So then our model has to stretch, grow, expand to incorporate what these things are. And I think that's where we are in the 21st century. And I think, I think we're starting to do that. Our science is actually com- coming up against this now because we're really we're, we're grappling with the seriousness of our, our limits of our quantum understanding, quantum mechanics. And we're also starting to grapple more with some of these strange things that have happened uh, in, you know, in the UFO experience and other phenomenological experiences like like psi ability and and uh, you know the paranormal things, things of that nature, we're taking it more seriously. I think that's good. Ash, did you have something you wanted to add there, mate? I did, yeah. And it was it was well. I've got a few things now after that, but um, yeah, it was go for the, it. I think the first bit was around the linguistics. Um, definitely. I mean, a prime example of that is people that have um, out-of-body experiences or, you know, go on DMT, DMT trips. You know, when they come back, there is the, the, quite often the phrase is there's simply no, I can't put this into words, that there's no, there's no way in our current understanding that you can put the experience they had in, you know, vocalize and verbalize it in, in the linguistics we have. It's just impossible to do. Um, so that, that's a prime example of an experience or a, a phenomenological experience and not being able to verbalize it in, in the model, as Nathan was saying, that we're used to uh, in our daily lives. Um, so, so yeah, that was what I was going to do there. Sorry, there's so much information coming from Nathan. I was like, um, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, that was it. Yeah, this whole idea about the model and with, this is what we're used to. This is what we've grown up to. It's kind of 
embedded in us since a child. It's, it's almost like we need that whole allegory of Plato's cave. It's like we need to get out of the cave. If we're going to understand what's actually going on and the meaning of what's going on, we need to get out of that cave and see what's really going on. We need to peek behind that curtain, that kind of thing. So um, I think we're starting to do that. But I think science and the limitations around the whole uh, scientific method over the years, that's, that has almost been a limiting factor. You know, we go back thousands of years in the ancients. The ancients seem to have more wisdom and knowledge in, in relation to what's going on. And we kind of lost that for a while with kind of modern science. And I think only now uh, people are brave enough to start exploring these and, and sort of almost going back to the old ways in a way with a kind of scientific twist on it. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful we're, we're, we're scratching off the surfaces and, and maybe going back to our roots and finding out what what is really going on out there in the, in the big wide world. Go on, Davey. <laughs> Davey, you're on mute, mate, I think. Sorry, schoolboy error. So, yeah, I think there's a lovely intersection there between what you were saying and, and what Nathan had, had mentioned earlier about this. Um, the, 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 the mystical. So Nathan mentioned that a lot of the early quantum physicists had what were really quite mystical experiences. And again, I do wonder whether with this narrower focus of the materialistic world, the material scientific world that we have, we begin to lose some of that um, wisdom that we've had, perhaps that understanding. And again, with my background as a yoga teacher, and I, it's quite a common thing in, in, you know, the, in the Hindu world to have multiple gods. And so there are plenty of them dotted around and they're around you all the time. And again, we look at Islam and we look at the jinn where there are these beings that share this same space with us in one form or another. And I do wonder whether we have moved away from some areas where we have had a better understanding. And it just one of the things that Nathan mentioned there that really caught my imagination and made me think when we hear the likes of Lou Elizondo and people saying, we need more data, we need more data, we need more data. I begin to wonder whether we actually do need more data or whether we need to change the way we look at the data. So rather than trying to look at the data to prove something is real, we need to start doing a true longitudinal analysis and start to open the framework and the the range over which we look at the data. And I know that's what the likes of John Keel and... uh, Valet and Salvador Teixeira and others have done over time. But again, I wonder whether that's, and this is a question I've asked myself a lot, is are we talking to the wrong people? We have a very Western-orientated view of the world. So I often think think to myself, okay, so if you're a, an Indian mystic, maybe we should be asking them what they feel this light phenomena in the world these beings appearing maybe they know the answer or maybe if they don't know the answer they have a better linguistic data set to start to explain it and our relationship to it Uh, yes an excellent point sorry good yeah i was just gonna say it's super fascinating to think about like um non non non-human intelligences wherever they originate from whether it's some kind of far corner of the universe or some kind of alternate universe or other, other dimension using technologies that tap into some of the aspects of reality that, that you guys are talking about and that would certainly go some way to explaining some of the strange things that are, are witnessed around these these ufo sightings as well one thing that i, I do find really fascinating is is the idea of 
you know, Keel's super spectrum, you know, Huxley's doors of perception, the the possibility that UFOs could at least, you know, partly be explained by these intelligences existing outside of our perceptible reality. Um, it's something I was I was asking uh, Gary Nolan about when I spoke to him recently as well. I'm really interested in the idea of crash retrievals as well and the claims that the US government could be in possession of like physical materials, which could be anything from fragments all the way up to fully intact, operable, non-human craft. And how do we kind of reconcile the fact that these UFOs, these intelligences might be existing outside of our perceptible reality with the actual physical debris or intact craft, whatever the case may be, which are actually inside our perceptible reality? It's, an, it's one that really baffles me, but I love thinking about it. So I'd be I'd be really interested to hear what you guys think of that. Um, Nathan, do you want to jump in there, mate? Sure, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think I'll, I'm going to link what Davey just said to what you're getting at here. So th- this notion that, there, that reality is populated by lots of different kinds of intelligences, not just human intelligence or uh, the intelligences that occupy what we would call the natural world, right? So, you know, it's teeming with life, let's put it that way. Uh, And that our ancient traditions basically all kind of point to this. And and it is kind of funny. I I find, I grew up in a Christian context. So, uh, you know, I took it for granted that that was, uh, that that there was some sort of non-human thing that existed out there. Uh, but it's funny when we start talking about that concept of non-human intelligence within the confines of the UFO phenomenon that people go, well, I don't know, that's kind of weird. I'm like, well, I mean, look at all the churches around. Like it's not, you know, everybody's pretty used to this idea. We just, uh, we just don't kind of see it sometimes. So, but to answer your question, the, 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 how do these things have sort of physical uh, craft, but maybe exist in these other realms that we can't see, right? Uh, I think that there, because it's teeming with, with life, we have uh, life that can do all kinds of di- different things, and some of them can uh, interact in our perceived reality, interact with us in our perceived reality, and have physical craft, have technology, just like we have technology. Uh, you know, it's just that their technology is far advanced from ours. But also, there are entities that that don't need that at all. Like they, they don't need technology to interact with us in the way that, that we can conventionally think of that. Um, because, you know, I, I would argue that if you, if you take the experiences and the stories that we hear about, if you take them seriously, then you have to kind of make room on the shelf for all of these different kinds of interactions uh, and, and modes of life, some of which are like us, some of which are, are kind of post-biological uh, or post-material uh, or non-material or interdimensional, like it's really kind of all of the, the, those things. It's a, it's just like if you were to take a, a, a droplet of seawater and, and look at it, like there's all kinds of life happening in that small droplet uh, and happening all the time, and we're kind of oblivious to it, right? Um, so I think that that's a good concept just to uh, incorporate into one's model of the UFO phenomena or the paranormal phenomena, because if if you don't, you're gonna have you're gonna find that you're you're gonna have one of those boxes with the you know, the square, the circle, the star shape and everything. And you're going to try to think everything should fit through the circle. And, and it's not going to do that because there, there are those other shapes that are out there. And we need a model, coming back to that idea again, a model that best incorporates how we can 
you know, have the whole box and you know, how we can have all of the, those shapes and how they can all interact with it. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you think there's um, a possibility that, that there could be a type of technology that can sort of simultaneously exist in another dimension as well as the, the you know, our dimension as well? Perhaps that could be, you know, what you were talking about earlier, Ash, with like quantum technology and things like that. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be like another universe, this universe. Perhaps there could be some bleed through there and a deliberate actual traveling between um, you know, different sort of aspects of reality as well. What do you reckon, Ash? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, when you think about it, I think 99.9% of an atom is, is empty space. So if, if you replicate that across everything materialistic that we think is, you know, we physically touch something like a table or whatever, actually, when you look at it on the, the sort of micro scale, it's, it's empty space. So when you when you consider that, and then you consider quantum mechanics and the strangeness around quantum mechanics, you know, this whole notion that something can be nowhere and everywhere at the same time, and it's only that, you know, when it's sort of brought into reality through the observer effect, it's actually there. Is that what is that what's going on with the UFO phenomenon? You know, everything's linked. I mean, I, I let's just go back a bit. I think you know we talk about a big bang or something bringing you know everything into existence. You've got a singularity there, so everything kind of can be linked back to that one moment. So that at that point of it being created, there's an entanglement. So everything's entangled. So everything's connected anyway from the start potentially. This is all very speculative, obviously, but with that in mind and the whole kind of like idea of space and quantum mechanics. I can see, yeah, there is a way that whatever these objects are, these higher consciousness, these beings, entities, whatever they are, if they have got some sort of technology or ability to traverse different dimensions and different parts of the universe, perhaps when they're traveling and their whole propulsion system, they're actually going they're going out of our realm and out of our dimension and existence. And it's only when they travel through, you know, for some moment, someone sees a UFO, perhaps their, their filter, their daily filter that they need to survive, because you know, there's always stuff going on around us, and we, we don't, you know, we only see enough to survive. We've evolved to, to see just what we need to. Perhaps that moment when you see a UFO, your filter's kind of opening up a bit, and it bleeds into this reality, and that's when you actually see a physical craft. There's there's so many different theories around this, and it, it is very speculative. It's really interesting. It blows your mind. Um, but I can see there there is some sort of in my very layman's terms, I can see that there there must be some sort of mechanism there that, that enables this to work, and and this this is kind of I think what we're looking at when we talk about physical craft involved here. Obviously, Nathan alluded to not every entity needs that. If there are some of these other entities or beings that kind of they don't even need physical bodies potentially, you know, they they, they exist as information in 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 whatever dimensional realm. Um, but the ones that are supposedly crashing, yeah, I, I can foresee that, you know, through some sort of like quantum mechanics type uh, engine or whatever it is they're using propulsion system, that, that yeah, there could be crash retrievals. Uh, and likewise, it's almost like a bit bit of a, a weird paradox, isn't it? Because there's a physical craft, but also they're coming from somewhere else. It's just odd. We can't get our head around. We haven't got the, the experience, the knowledge, or the linguistics, linking back to what Davey said earlier, to, to even understand what's going on here. But yeah, I mean, we could talk about I could talk about this for ages. I've probably not made any sense there, but um, it's interesting. No, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense, mate. Yeah, you're great, great points. And I think it sort of like uh, seems as though if our model of reality is broken, nothing's going to make sense according to that model of reality, is it? You know, there's going to be certain things that just don't add up if the whole system for understanding the universe that we have is flawed and based on you know something that doesn't really work. Um, David, did you have something to add there, mate? 
you've set me up beautifully for that. It's almost as if we were scripted here, Frank. So, <laughs> there we go. Uh, talking about that f- framework, and, and Nathan talked about that model perhaps not being right. We have to start thinking about what is a paradigm shift and are we moving through a paradigm shift? So this is a question for everybody out there. Do you know you're in a paradigm shift or do you only know you're in a paradigm shift after it's happened? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a philosopher, but I wonder. But coming back to not understanding the the framework and the world that we live in, I mentioned earlier on that we still t- talk, we live in a world where we talk about five senses and we know there are more than that. There's a sensation of heat. There's prior perceptions, the sense of where in space a part of your body is. And then still, until we start to actually live in a world where we are talking about multiple states of matter, or multiple states, multiple senses, sorry, then we're, we're limiting ourselves. And the game is the same with states of matter. You ask anybody what the states of matter are, and they will tell you solid, gas, liquid. What about plasma? What about an Einstein-Bose concentrate? There are, again, we know of at least 20, 24 different kinds of matter that are surrounding us. And yet we still, in our day-to-day world, live in those three states of of matter. So who's to say that an existence couldn't live, for example, that's that's plasma-based, and that couldn't have intelligence, and that could not move between these other states of matter? Who knows? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and I want to come back to, you're both hitting on things that I think are really important to highlight. So, you know, Ash, you, you mentioned um, the, you know, evol- we're evolved to see, you know, the world the way that it is or to see what we need to see is the way you put it, which I think is the right way to put it. Um, and that's an important point to kind of just tease out a little bit more. So looking at quantum mechanics, for example, um, if we think of, the way that we perceive the world as like, let's say we're watching a football game and I'm using football in the, in the, in the UK sense, not in the, in the American sense. So you're watching a football match and, uh, and I'm watching that match over here and you're watching it, you know, over there. Uh, and when, when the, when the goal is scored, uh, we're both observing that goal being scored at the same time, but we're, we're, we, we don't, we, we know that the goal isn't being scored inside our television. Like it's, it's happening somewhere else. But our perception is the, is the te- television, and so the world is like we're, we're experiencing the world in the same way, right? So we're, we're we have uh, uh, an interface that we use to to interact with reality, and that interface, and we already know this is true, filters reality to us in a variety of ways. And in fact, like our uh, our compilation of those different inputs and, and stimuli is actually happening in the in, in the past. Like by the time we're consciously aware of it, it's already happened to us. But the, so in, so we're looking at the world through this screen where we're observing and it's being filtered down. And so how the world actually is 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 really not even like close to how we're perceiving it. Like in fact, if we were to perceive the world how it actually is, we wouldn't be able to function in the way that we function. So evolution has basically designed us to only see things that, that, that ensure our survival and exclude everything else. And I was not to say, and, and you know, I'm, I'm pulling here heavily from folks like Don Hoffman and Bernardo Castro, but it's not to say that you know, if, if you run into a lion or something, you, you can just like pretend that it's not there. And you take that lion very seriously. You take the train very seriously. You don't have to stand on the tracks because it could, could kill you. Uh, but that's not actually what is happening in, in reality. It's just what's happening in the screen of our perception. 
And so, you know, I do think that uh, these concepts are starting to make their way into popular conscious awareness. Um, I know this because I have people that aren't even into this topic at all, and they just kind of casually bring these ideas up in conversation. So it's happening, and, and you can see that it's happening too in our popular media and movies. Like you know, it's starting to kind of percolate. And and to get to the the point about you know Davy's point, you know, can you recognize a paradigm shift, uh, or do you only see it after the fact? And I think that that's a great question. And I think that it, it it's it's clearest after the fact. But those that are going through it, you know, it, it doesn't happen uh, in a binary way, right? It happens very kind of like di- in a diffuse way. There are some people in, in society who already understand that that reality is different, and they and they live their lives in the in the knowledge of that di- difference. But to everyone else, those people look crazy, right? And it's not until you fast forward to where that idea has. Uh, spread across the civilization that then everyone's like, well, that, yeah, of course that's reality. Right. But then there are the new people in that new reality who are also experiencing something and and, and rocking something different and they become the new crazies. This is just like how it works. Right. So I think it's important again, coming back to the UFO phenomenon, like it's important to pay attention to these things that are a little bit crazy because they in a way are like kind of like the light that is seeping through the cracks of, of the veneer of the world that we have constructed around ourselves. And they're, they're, they're teasing us and, and drawing us to say, you know what, there's more outside the, this box that you've constructed. Yeah. Anyone got anything to add there? You know, it's funny. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, I think it was the recent uh, Joe Rogan podcast with um, uh, Ben from Uncharted X. And there's been a few other bits recently with uh, some Graham Hancock and, and Randall Carlson uh, discussing some of the the uh, ancient apocalypse type of uh, scenarios. And um, I think it was actually Joe Rogan who said, you know, that if there was some kind of very advanced, you know, civilization, you know, perhaps 12, 13,000 years ago that had been wiped out by some kind of cataclysmic event, perhaps before that cataclysm, they did have perhaps more awareness and more ability to perceive other aspects of reality through an evolution of consciousness. And maybe that was an actual key component of their technology that allowed them to do the things that we find difficult to explain with some of the, you know, I was going to say pottery, but they're not actually pottery, you know, the, uh, the, the vases and things that are found in, 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 um, in, in Egypt and things like the boxes in the Serapium and whatnot. And, and also a point that, that, that the point that Joe Rogan said that I found quite interesting is that if there was some kind of really dramatic cataclysm that, that completely destroyed everything on the face of the earth, those that were to survive that perhaps wouldn't be the most in tune with these kind of, you know, the, the, the out there aspects of, of consciousness. And they would just be purely focused on, you know, bitter survival in that, in that really savage landscape after the cataclysm and that would sort of explain why we've gone on the path that we have done over the last few thousand years because it was a survival mode humanity was in survival mode you can't contemplate the deeper aspects of existence if you're just trying to stay alive and that's kind of would explain why we've got to where we are now with this focus on improvement and survival and making new things and whatnot and we finally got to this stage where we've our technology has allowed us a bit more headspace to actually think hang on a minute 
where where are we again? <laughs> you know, and it's just took us to this to this point. Obviously, a lot of that is speculative, but it's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, did you want to say something, David? There? Yeah, I like that that thought and that approach, and also I, I would add an element to that in the in that primitive culture. You're looking to the gods to whatever to explain the world around you. And our scientific world has become the new religion. That is what explains the world to us. Um, and I'd just like to fall back on something that Nathan said, which I'm going to write down and probably print out and keep next to my computer every day because it really, really resonated me, which was, we are seeing the seeping of the light through the cracks in the veneer of our current reality. It's beautiful. It's poetic and beautiful, Nathan. And it reminds me, and I'm not a biblical scholar. My grandfather was a Methodist minister, but I'm certainly not a, a, a particularly religious person. But there's a passage that always, again, spoke to me in the same way that you did now, which is 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am also known. And again, this is something that's come up in my yoga teaching. One of my yoga teachers in, in India, Sudhir Rishi, said, in our yoga practice, we are polishing the mirror. When we look at the world, we are seeing what is effectively a dirty mirror. And again, it's back to Donald Hoffman, and we're seeing only those bits of the world that we need to see in order to survive immediately, survival of the fittest, procreate and carry on our lineage. And I wonder whether there are processes, routines, rituals, or to quote Diana Walsh-Pasulka, protocols that we can use to help us clear that mirror, to see through that glass darkly and clear it so that we start to know ourselves as we truly are. Um, and again, I think of what Kit Green told John Burroughs, if you want to understand this UFO phenomenon and what's happened to you, go away and do Vipassana meditation in Kripalu Yoga. And so I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks about ways that we can clear that 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 view. Let more let more light seep through the cracks in the veneer, Nathan. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. Funnily enough, I've never actually heard that before uh, from that particular um teacher that you were talking about, but um I, I do a lot of running and Muay Thai and things like that, very intense like physical exercise, run up mountains and whatnot. And I always say to people um, that the reason I do that is not because I care about uh, physical appearance or whatever, but it's kind of like looking at the world through a, a pane of glass that's dirty. And when I've been running, it honestly feels like somebody's got some Mr. Muscle on that window and made it glisten. You know, it's, it's crazy the difference that it makes. And funnily enough as well, almost a synchronicity, I was just listening to um, uh, Diana Pasulka on um, the UFO Rabbit Hole podcast where she was talking about those protocols and how, you know, some of the ancient philosophers used to follow those really strict protocols of being hydrated and spending time outdoors and, and all the rest of it, you know, sort of conditioning the physical body to allow the mind to be in the right, you know, sort of zone to be able to contemplate some of these other things as well. Um yeah, super, super fascinating and quite a weird synchronicity that you, you brought up that point. I was lis listening to that just before uh, we started recording, so pretty cool. Go ahead, Ash. Yeah, what you just said there um, kind of um, made me think, you know, getting back to kind of UFO phenomena and why people see what they see. Interestingly, when you kind of look at where what people are up to at the moment they have encounters or the locations where they're at, 
it's quite often in locations where they are in that kind of serene environment and their consciousness their conscious their state of consciousness sorry can go into kind of almost a yeah it's almost like a dreamlike state isn't it and they start to experience these things we see a lot of encounters you know on dark roads at night or in forests and you know people have strange i mean i've personally had strange things happen in, in, in with those kind of things as well it's almost as if yeah your your filter system kind of um, breaks down for a second it allows all this other stuff to to come in kind of that that tunnel vision you've normally got is kind of open up where those headlights are open and you can see more stuff than that you normally can um so yeah perhaps that being close to nature or being in certain environments does actually invoke these experiences. Um, certainly when you look at, again, ancient civilizations or you look at some of the South American tribes and the Amazonian tribes, etc., and we talk about ayahuasca, get back to the whole DMT side of things as well. And another kind of like, is that almost like a chemical key to open up these realms? Um, it's certainly interesting when you look at that. Is that is that a way that we can start experiencing these things? There's lots of trials going on at the moment, particularly here in the UK as well. I think Imperial College London are doing stuff around uh, intravenously injecting people with with DMTs. They have longer trips and start to kind of like understand what's going on in those trips. Can they map the DMT realm? Is it the same if I took it uh, and then tw- two hours later you took it, Frank? Can we go in the same actual areas of the DMT realm? It's all really interesting stuff. Um, yeah. Don't know what anyone else thinks about that, but yeah, it's super interesting. And and as you say, you know, there's there's a a connection there with C five protocols and things like that. You know, a lot of um, meditation, um, as you mentioned, Davy as well. Um, you know, the the those kind of studying certain aspects of meditation, and, and again, the physical protocols. And those who who take part in C five do claim that that meditation is a key part of it, and having a certain intention and focusing your mind and stillness of mind and all the rest of it um, beforehand. Super interesting. And um, also, the the thing about all the ancient cultures around the world, particularly the ones that stretch back the furthest, have a real reverence for people within their societies who specifically dedicate their lives to exploring consciousness you know through whether it be meditation and getting yourself into a certain mindset in the same way really that you know the the c5 practitioners do it you know um and receiving knowledge from some kind of other realm and then obviously there's the various um you know medicine man shaman type cultures as well which often involves ingesting certain substances and obviously we have the druidic traditions here in in england you know where they used to take certain mushrooms and various toads and things around the world with psychoactive substances and obviously you know a, a very uh intense one is the the ayahuasca experiences uh, which i've been super fascinated by ever since i've heard about them but not quite plucked up the courage to actually take part in one just yet um what do you reckon nathan anything to add there mate no i think that's uh it's an excellent um segue into uh, one of the concepts of this consciousness first model and that's that if you really buy into that uh notion then we all are in fact connected we we are connected at a fundamental level. Um, and a good example of this, just as a you know, metaphorical example, is imagine that we are, you know, what, what Frank looks like and Ash and Davy and Nathan, we're like the tops of these mountains that, that we look like islands in the ocean. But if you go into the ocean and go down, like we're actually all part of the planet. We, we are all just, we, there are different perceptional levels of, of, of what we are, right? And so I think, the, the practices, the meditation, the, uh, the going into the natural world, these are ways to sort of turn off the tendency that we've uh, accrued to uh, surround ourselves with 
you know, thoughts, ideas, manufactured things, uh, objects, right? We're really good at creating objects, <laughs> you know, so we populate our world with them. Uh, and when you go into a, a meditative state and you're in those serene environments, you, you're, you're kind of turning the volume down on that way of, of being and thinking and allowing what is below to, to be, to be present to that, to being present to that greater reality that is beneath the surface. So I think that there is, I mean, this is, you know, it's why we can have these uh, connections both without, with each other. We can have connections in the CE5 experience, like, because at, at a root level, we are really connected. Uh, and, and, you know, something else I wanted to touch on that kind of, I think ties into this too, you know, cause I think Ashley brought this up about the near death experiences and, you know, the words that can't quite describe it, but, you know, you often hear them say things too, like uh, that it's more real than real. Right. So that, that tells you that in a way that what we experience in reality is kind of a, a like a, a poor approximation of how it really is. And that, that there's a deeper experience of it. Uh, and I think that meditation is essentially kind of like a, it's a, it's a hack. It's a technology to hack into well, what that is, which isn't to say we should just be all be monks and meditate all the time. I think that that's impractical and not part of what we're here to do. Uh, but it is a way for us to have that experience and expand our awareness. And that, I think that's important. Um, and we could really, you know, go lots of different directions here, uh, um, maybe a part two at some point. Um, but in terms of like what the, uh, you know, why, why is it like this? And what is the purpose of, of reality if it is th this way? And how do, how do we fit in in the context of all these other intelligent beings? Like, th these are the bigger questions if, we're, if we are, in fact, going to take a lot of this phenomena seriously. Yeah, anybody want to add on to that there? Pretty big, heavy question to, to grapple with if anybody wants to take a bite of that one. What is our purpose in the universe? Yeah, a lot to uh, lot to unpack there, Nathan. I think I'll have to have a good think about that one, and uh, I'll get back to you in the in the in the part two, I reckon. But just bringing it back to to UFOs um, for a second, with the the various shapes that UFOs are obviously seen by the the people that, that witness them. What there's obviously the disc, you know, the the orb, the, the triangle, the cigar, etc. You know, if we use the the example of a triangle, do you guys think what's being seen is a triangle, or is that is that even a, a valid question? Is, is it could it be many things, or do you think there's a an element of what is being seen is so outside of anything that we have a, a reference for that we interpret it as these, you know, blocky shapes, you know. Which are kind of the, the the standard shapes, aren't they? Really, circle, triangle. You know, the the, the sort of the, the shapes that are present in all these different cultures around the world as as part of like Celtic artwork and ancient artwork from all all around the globe. So my my little little girl, she's three. You know, she's just learning to draw circles, triangles, squares. They're the first things, aren't they? They're the fundamental shapes. And do you think it is literally a craft that was designed to be in that shape, or something that we're just we just can't make sense of it and your consciousness just has to translate it into something and that's perhaps the reason that those shapes are what get reported um yeah another big intense question um what do you reckon davy any thoughts there mate i have several on that and um i'll start with that story that people talk about if 
you take a, a three-dimensional world and you take a pencil and you push that pencil into a two-dimensional world. What they see, first of all, is a tiny little dot, the tip of the pen. As that pen moves through that three-dimensional world into that two-dimensional world, that dot becomes round and becomes a circle. And then it gets to the end and it closes up and disappears. So it's entirely possible that the shapes, the forms, the, the symbols that we're seeing are that example of something moving from one dimension into another dimension. I also think it's very important and key that these are, exactly as you said, your, da your daughters, they draw these shapes. These are, just like you said, the fundamental building blocks. And Nathan talked earlier about the first thing children do is they get that game where you take a square and you try to put it through a circle and it won't fit. And then you learn and you try the triangle and that won't fit, the shape sorters. And that is teaching you about your relative place and their relative place and relationship in the planet. The third part of this, which really, again, speaks to me, is these ancient symbols and the possibility that some of these hold power. There's a, there's a, a, a concept of sacred geometry and that those relationships actually tell us more about the way that the universe is constructed and our place in it. So you look at the Fibonacci series and it repeats throughout everything that's living. Ash mentioned earlier that you, know, you go to the subatomic level and 99.9% .9 of it is space. You expand that out from the micro to the macro and you look at the universe or you look at a galaxy and again you have the same pattern as things orbiting a central point but the majority of it is space. And finally, <laughs> I'm really fortunate to live on the right on the, the side of the, the Ilkley, of Ilkley Moor, Yorkshire Moors, and we have up here some petroglyph markings that are three and a half, four thousand 4,000 years old. And what shapes are they? They are cup and ring. They are circles with circles running round them. And you go up onto the moors most nights, you'll see something slightly unusual. And it has a long history of, of unusual things being seen. And there's UFO sightings. There's a photograph somebody took of an alleged alien on Ilkley Moor. There's the ancient history from 200 years ago of the great big black dog that prowled across the moor. But when you actually go back and look at the original texts, they weren't describing a great big black dog. They were seeing two orange glowing balls of light moving across the moorland, which they ascribed to be the glowing eyes of a hound of hell. So again, our like we talked about earlier, our language shapes and describes what we are. But personally, I think that the, the shapes that we see are... Uh, almost like little nudges and hints to help us on on the way to help us develop that consciousness and to understand where we are mm. yeah really interesting mate what what do you reckon ash anything you want to add on on the, the shapes yeah i mean uh, i think like what you were saying frank is it is it actually something that's physically being seen or is it just our interpretation of of that and we ju we just can't it, we're just putting it in a way that we understand it, with, with our limited uh, outlook on the world and experience um i mean is, is it something in the human psyche you know you, the kind of concept of the Jungian archetype kind of thing it's everyone has it from the moment of birth and it kind of it pops up when we we struggle to explain something that we're seeing in front of us um, this links into the ufo phenomenon quite nicely when we talk about screen memories 
you know people saying that they've um and uh, yeah i've had personal experiences of, of, of this um interesting experiences with oversized owls and things like this and you know seeing people see these kind of like um totem animals don't they you know like it could be like large birds or whatever it may be it's almost as if that's kind of like the first thing that you associate it with and it's almost like it's buried deep within the human psyche um so other shapes another thing like that you see a craft we don't actually know what we're seeing but we, we just we just try and rationalize it and put it into something we understand because yeah from a young age davy we've had those toys i mean my, my daughter's got one at the moment trying to put the shape in so yeah is it just something we revert back to because it's just kind of default mode it's, it's a way of just us rationalizing what we're seeing in front of us um i think a good uh, a good example of where we actually see this we talk about the ufo phenomena is when we have um you know a ufo encounter happen or something you have multiple witnesses but then actually when you interview the witnesses you speak to them you get their accounts separately they report slight seeing slightly different things i mean you see this with the rendlesham incident obviously john burrows as far as he's concerned this happened this bright light thing happened and he woke up half hour later and that was it whereas actually jim peniston had a whole different experience at the same time they were stood next to each other um you know that's just a famous case but you go through historical cases ones that haven't even become big big cases multiple witnesses seeing different things it goes back to what you're saying frank you can have people stood there and someone will see a triangle and someone will just see a bright light or something completely different so clearly that links back to there is some sort of link with consciousness and why are we seeing what we're seeing and why are we seeing the shapes we're seeing who knows yeah ab- absolutely and i think there's there's plenty of examples of that aren't there you know the the miracle of fatima some people, you know, crowds of thousands. Some people saw nothing at all. Some people saw a literal apparition of a being of light, the Virgin Mary. And again, everybody had those different experiences there. And um, another one is the uh, the case in, in France, I believe it was, uh, that Jacques Vallée has done quite a bit of work on where um, they actually took a photograph of something which, I forget, was it a disc or a triangle? It was a, it was a particular shape anyway. And then when they actually developed the photograph, it wasn't anything like the shape that they both saw at that moment in time. Um, so, yeah, really interesting to, to consider. What do you reckon, Nathan? I think we're about up on time for today, so take us home. Yeah, no, I think uh, <laughs> these guys have said it really well. Um you know, just to kind of bring it full circle, right? I think the the this is why the phenomena is so fascinating to me, and you know, it's 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 pointing us in a direction that I th- I'm hopeful there will be new models that can have better explanatory power for how the world really is. Uh, and to touch on something that Ash mentioned earlier about you know, science and kind of where we are now, uh, you know, I, I, the reason why I'm I'm really into this is 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 that I feel like it has the potential to redeem human experience like we we've really we we've pushed human experiences into uh, kind of the realm of the imagination and, and fantasy and, and we, we've reduced what it is to be human to just chemical processes and i think that the phenomena is sort of telling us that no we we need to take that seriously and, and we need to go back and revisit the the, the stories and, and the experiences of our of our ancient past and we need to treat them seriously not like they were just some sort of uneducated human beings that walked the planet but but what they were describing is something that yes they interpreted it through their their temporal lens and framework and all that is true but it it is something that that happened to to them and uh for us just to write it off as oh these were these were cute little mythological stories that they just came up with so that they could uh you know, remember when to plant their crops or that they could exert state power by controlling everybody in a narrative fashion. Like, 
you know, it's, it's both. And I think so the phenomenon allows us and it gives us an opportunity to uh, expand our notion of what can happen. And I think treat each other with a, with a respect that, that we, that, that we need, you know, that, that, that conscious life demands. Um, we're all part of this grand thing, right? And I think this is a chance for us to really grapple with that in a way that our science has, I think, forgotten. Yeah, superb, mate. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just really glad to have got you guys on to, to talk about this. I had this uh, kind of vision in my head of, of, of you three having a conversation. I think you, all three of you are individually fantastic people and really interesting to listen to. And I, I thought, you three having a conversation, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. And um, here I am, the fly on the wall. It's been fantastic. <laughs> so I would really love to do a part two at some point down the line as well. And we'll all kind of... Uh, you know, chew on these these thoughts, and uh, if, if you're all up for it, we'll get back together at some point down the line and, and do a part two. I'd, I'd love to do that. Definitely, Frank. Um, we didn't even get to talk about like simulation theory and all these different kind of crazy theories out there. So we can definitely <laughs> so do much. There's loads. There's tons. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah well i really look forward to that and i'll make sure everybody's uh social media links are in the episode description so uh, people can find you guys and, and check you out and uh yeah thanks very much again uh, one and all and i look forward to the next time thank you guys thank you thanks frank and yeah great to speak with you nathan davy UFO Podcast.